The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 7 today to set the context for us. And then we'll begin looking at the details of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. Today's sermon I titled it, uh, Fulfilling Marital Intimacy. Fulfilling Marital Intimacy. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 6. We did look at verse 1 the last couple of weeks to lay the foundation. Very critical verse to understand. Now we're ready to embark on 2 through 6, Paul's next topic. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. One and following. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. You married people. I added that, sorry. That's what he means. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, in order that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession and not of command. Yet I wish that all people were even as I myself am, single. However, each person has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. I mentioned last week that if you didn't have a whole lot of experience in reading the Bible or 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 7 in particular, you read that and you might be very confused, scratching your head, thinking, what in the world is Paul talking about? And if you are confused, that's not just you. Um, I probably have like 20 to 30 commentaries on 1 Corinthians, so I read through those after I do my study just to see what uh, biblical teachers throughout the, the ages have concluded and very edifying and very helpful but uh, there is great confusion or disparity of opinion in first corinthians 7 the entire chapter as a matter of fact first corinthians 7 the whole chapter is very challenging in terms of uh, being a bible teacher and interpreting it even translating it when i was in seminary 25 years ago there were a couple of classes uh, hermeneutics and homiletics where we were assigned different passages we either had to preach or study uh, at different times and for whatever reason, I ended up getting two passages out of Corinthians. This was one of them. The other one was 1 Corinthians 11, and they were just uh, very difficult and very challenging. And 25 years later, they're still just as challenging. And over the years, I've come to realize, wow, 1 Corinthians poses one of the greatest challenges, I think, for a Bible teacher and Bible expositor. And uh, this is no exception. So we're going to go at an appropriate pace here. My goal is not to just rush through this. Uh, I want to be careful. I want to make sure that we all thoroughly understand this. It is so vitally important. This whole chapter and this section in particular for us today. 
you have an outline there for you on the back of your bulletin, one through four, just so you know. Uh, this is a footnote and a, an aside and a true story. Just because there's an outline on the back of your bulletin doesn't mean I'm going to get through the outline today or in one day. I don't think I've ever said that in seven and a half years here at GBF or eight years, just so you know. Uh, it's just a tool for you. If you want to use it, uh, that's great. Uh, and the footnote or the historical aside was, true story, in the early 70s, because I went to Grace Community Church for a while, uh, not in the 70s, but John MacArthur told the story. In the early 70s, he used to have an outline on the back of the bulletin for every sermon he preached. And inevitably, he never got to the outline because his introductions were so long. And so week after week, month after month, year after year, people would just keep coming up and say, hey, you didn't get your outline done today. You didn't finish the outline. And so after a few years, he just got kind of tired of it and whatever. And he said, "Okay, I'm not putting an outline on the bulletin anymore. And so to to this day, uh, for the last 30 years on his bulletin, it just says the passage and the title of his sermon with no notes or outline. Thus, he has not committed himself to anything. So anyway, um, (laughs) I'm just saying that just so you know, I am not going to finish this outline today. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't even know if we're going to get to point one. But we will definitely finish this passage if I come back from Kiev in two weeks, Lord willing. And we'll definitely wrap it up. But we have got to set the foundation. We have got to lay the context. This is too vitally important. Now, if you're paying attention and you noticed, uh, verses 2 through 7, Paul is talking about husband and wife, man and woman. I believe verses 2 through 7 are primarily talking about a Christian husband and a Christian wife. They are married and how they practice conjugal marital rights with one another and marital intimacy with one another. That's what is being addressed here. And that's very practical. By the way, raise your hand if you're married. Okay, go ahead and put your hand up. That's a lot of people. Th- this is for you. Uh, This is speaking to you. I am married. This is speaking to me. So it's incredibly practical. So we're going to make sure we understand it right. Uh, But there's some things we've got to understand first. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has made a transition in the book. We mentioned that last time. Um, We finished up 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The conclusion there. That last, in verse 20, Paul says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. And so he was talking about uh, being a Christian and being morally pure and not being sexually immoral because some of the Corinthians were being sexually immoral, whether it was with a religious prostitute or having uh, sexual intimacy outside the confines of marriage, and he had to address it. It was going on in the church. These were real Christians Uh, battling, struggling with compromising in their sexual purity. And so he had to explain it, he had to rebuke it, and he had to tell them why they need to be pure, because they belong to God. Your body, your physical body belongs to God, and you need to honor God. He's your master. Honor him with your life and your physical body and how you conduct conduct yourself sexually speaking. And so that's what he was talking about. And uh, so he concludes with that, therefore glorify God in your body. And that is really one of the key principles carrying over into chapter 7. We're still on that theme. If you're a Christian, whether you are single, married, engaged, divorced, separated, it doesn't matter. The principle is true for all of us. If we are Christians, we need to glorify God with our body, our physical body is what he's talking about. 
and primarily in the area of moral holiness and purity. Sexual fidelity. So that's the topic at hand. Carries that over into chapter 7, so that's where we are. But there is a transition because um, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Now, this is the first time he says this in this letter. For the first six chapters, he was dealing with pressing issues in the Corinthian church that he heard about orally through oral reports. Wow, there's division, you're fighting, you got cliques. Man, people are talking about me, the pastor behind my back, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he needed to address that, and he did. And so those were through oral reports, things he's heard, uh, messengers that came to him. Now the transition in chapter 7, verse 1 is he, they wrote Paul a letter. Questions for the pastor. Now remember, Paul had been their pastor for a year and a half. He was in their presence, literally. He taught them for a year and a half. He said many things. They were new Christians. They did not have an Old Testament Jewish worldview. They had to learn everything from scratch. Some of these Christian truths were totally new and totally radical and totally contrary to the way they had lived their life up to that point, totally contrary to the culture in which they live. And so Paul comes along with all these new teachings, these biblical teachings, the Christian worldview, the ethic of the entire scriptures. So it probably rocked the world of many of these Corinthian Christians because they had to change their entire paradigm of how they view life and live their life day to day. So they had to begin thinking differently. They were very confused in many areas, and they took some things that Paul had said or taught while he was with them, or maybe in an earlier letter that he wrote where he made a statement, and then some of those statements they didn't fully understand. Some of those statements they turned on their ear or took it out of context, and as a result, because they understood Paul incorrectly, they were believing the wrong thing, and as a result, they're also living the wrong way. So now in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is correcting, actually he's answering very specific questions they have. And he's also addressing in chapter 7 problems they currently have in their church that need to be addressed immediately. And the theme is with respect to sexual uh, fulfillment, sexual practice, regardless of your status in life, whether you're married, engaged, single, divorced, widowed, doesn't matter. These are all the issues that Paul is addressing. And the theme of sexual intimacy is heavy and all throughout the entire chapter. Imagine that the Bible talks about sex. I mean, seriously, some people are surprised by that. They don't think the Bible does. We mentioned that earlier. And when it does talk about sex, some people, or the popular view is, uh, the Bible has a very negative view of sexuality. Uh, I was reminded of this in a very stark way this week. Just reading, doing research, and came across the story of Frank Schaefer. Frankie Schaefer. Frankie Schaefer is probably about 60 years old. He is the son of Francis and Edith Schaefer. Francis Schaeffer was one of the most prominent, well-known, popular evangelical theologians and philosophers and apologists from the 1960s until he died in the 80s. Switzerland, Europe, and also here in America. Francis Schaeffer, maybe you've read some of his books. He's got a lot of good stuff. And Edith Schaeffer as well. Wrote some great books for ladies primarily. And they had a ministry in Switzerland, and they had several children. And Frank, Frankie... Little Frankie was raised in the Schaefer home. And keep in mind that Francis Schaefer, highly respected and revered in the Christian world, the evangelical world. And little Frankie was raised in a Christian home with Christian parents, with the Christian worldview. 
Early on, Frankie embraced that Christian worldview and the Christian faith of his parents, at least verbally so. As he got older, past high school and the college years, he began to collaborate with his dad, Francis Schaefer, in the ministry. And he got into film and he would help his dad. His dad would write books and then Frankie would help his dad put those books into film, videos. And some of them became very popular. And Frankie became very passionate about the Christian cause, the evangelical cause, having an impact for Christ in society. Uh, there were particular social issues that he was passionate and inspired about. One of those was abortion and the sanctity of life. Little Frankie, who now was an adult, uh, took that on as his sole crusade, that he was all for uh, life and against abortion. And he was pro-life. As a matter of fact, many credit Frankie Schaefer for starting or spearheading the religious right that began in the early 80s. And he gave his life for it, at least for a couple of decades. But if you've been paying attention in the last 20 years, maybe you've seen on CNN or usually very liberal TV talk shows, a guy named Frankie Schaefer appearing on the TV talk show who is very strident, very angry, very anti-Republican, very anti-conservatives, very anti Christianity, very anti-Bible, that's Frankie Schaefer. He has become an absolute apostate of the faith. And Scripture would say his faith has become shipwrecked. And now he's an apologist, an outspoken one, vehemently so against Christianity and everything that his parents raised him to be. And he's a best-selling author. He is prolific. And in the last 15 years, he's just pumped out all these books, and they all have the same theme about how horrible it was to be raised in a fundamentalist, restrictive, pharisaical, legalistic Christian home, and how that inhibited him. And now he's on a crusade to retaliate and set the record straight, even bad-mouthing his parents, who are dead, every chance he gets. That's Frankie Schaefer. It's amazing, because I knew... Frankie Schaefer when he was a fired-up, professing, born-again conservative Christian. Now I actually read his new books or peruse through them, and one of them I did read, and I'm aghast. I was like, is this the same person? It, well, it is. But one, of, one theme that weaves its way through every one of Frankie Schaefer's recent hate books against Christianity and his parents in the Bible is he's on the, the theme of sex. And he, and I don't, you know, we don't know if he's lying or telling the truth or maybe what he says has a grain of truth, but he said he was raised in a very puritanical, prudish, oppressive, restrictive, Christian, fundamentalist, separatist home that didn't want to talk about sex and almost gave the impression that sex was a bad thing, it was negative, and it was always associated with guilt. And that's how he was trained and that's how he was taught. And now as a 60-year-old man, he highly regrets that. And it was just a, a good reminder, boy, if that is true, it's a reminder and a caution for us as Christian parents of how we approach the topic of sexuality with our ch uh, children as Christians. We've got to represent accurately, honestly, what the Bible actually says about sexuality. And there's a couple approaches that Christians often take, Christian parents. Oh, it's too embarrassing, uh, I don't want to talk about it. Or oh, my kids, uh, they'll figure it out on their own. Or I don't need to go into detail about it. Well, my parents never taught me about it. And on and on it goes. Um, 
Well, parents, if, and I've said this before, if you don't teach your children about sexuality, they're going to learn it from somebody. And think about the alternatives. Their elementary friends in the locker room from secular television, you certainly don't want them learning it for the first time or being practiced in those venues. It will corrupt their thinking. So we've got to be open and honest. And so that's, again, a precursor to what I'm about to teach on here in 1 Corinthians 7, because I told you a couple of weeks ago that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-7 through 7 is the most explicit passage in the entire Bible on sexual uh, intimacy between a man and a woman from a biblical point of view. So we can't just skip the chapter or pass over it. Or maybe you're a visitor today and you've never been to this church, and it's like, wow, the pastor's preaching on sex today. I came on the right day. Or maybe, oh, I came on the wrong day. Who knows what your perspective is? Why is he doing that? Because it's in the Bible and we're preaching through God's word and we want to teach on the full counsel of God. And 1 Corinthians starts chapter 1, ends at 16, and we are talking about everything that's in there because God gave it to the church and his people to know. We need to be fully equipped. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness so that the man and the woman and the child of God might be adequate, thoroughly furnished, totally equipped, that they might honor God with their life. Amen? So that's why we're looking at it, and we're not going to pass over it or water it down. As a matter of fact, I think understanding it thoroughly, completely as given by God through Paul, if you are married, this could revolutionize your marriage. It could revitalize your marriage. Maybe it could be the solution to the problem in your marriage and you didn't realize it. That's possible. That's how important and powerful this passages and so that's where we're going to look at it but speaking of going back to frankie schaefer very sad story his view uh most recently i think it was in 2013 so not long ago his most recent best-selling book came out uh sex god and mama or sex god and mom that's the title and the way he represents and then he just rags on the bible and he says that the bible has this this twisted view of sexuality that is prudish puritanical archaic, restrictive, oppressive. God is a killjoy, or the Bible is. Guilt-ridden is the approach. And I'm thinking, wow. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. Because the biblical view of sexuality has this vantage point instead, that sex between man and woman the act of sex is a gift from God. It is a supernatural gift from God. As a matter of fact, when you get married, the best wedding present that you will receive is not the fancy, expensive diamond that your guy gave you. That's a maybe second or third. It's the gift of marriage itself, and with that, the gift of sex that God gives to a married couple. Really. So marriage is a gift, according to the Bible. It is sacred. It is liberating and freeing biblical sexuality. The reason it's liberating is because uh, God looks on sex within marriage with approval. It pleases him. Isn't that amazing? There's no guilt with it. They were naked and unashamed, says the Bible. Uh, Biblical sex is fulfilling within the confines of marriage. Fulfilling. It is satisfying, which is the exact opposite of the sex of the world or it's from one liaison to another, or it's with somebody that you're not married to, and on and on, that is not fulfilling. It uh, has a, a flash of satisfaction for the flesh, 
But there's no long-term fulfillment and satisfaction that comes with that. The world's version of sexuality, it's a counterfeit. It is pseudo-sexuality. The opposite of satisfying, fulfilling, enjoyable biblical sex within the confines of marriage, biblical sexuality is safe. It's safe between a husband and wife. It's spiritually safe, emotionally safe. It builds trust at a deeper level between you and your spouse. It's safe physically, literally. You're intimate with one person and one person only continually. You know where they've been and how they live. And you don't even risk necessarily physical medical issues that could come from having one partner after another after another and stranger after stranger after stranger. So that's biblical intimacy. It is safe. It is worshipful. Isn't that amazing? We don't think of that. It is. It's an act of worship. A husband and wife, and we talked about that, how that intimacy between husband and wife before God is a picture of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and their intimate fellowship eternally with one another face to face. It's worshipful. Uh, It is spiritual. It is healthy. It is intimate. It is personal. These are all wonderfully blessed terms that accurately describe a biblical view of sexuality contrary to what Frankie Schaefer said and continues to say. Now going back to 1 Corinthians 7 just to kind of set the context for us because interpreting it will be much easier if we have a proper context and some helps along the way. Um, The Corinthians had wrong views about marriage, about singleness, about sexuality, even about Christianity, about spirituality, about growing in holiness, about growing in moral purity, about gaining approval from God in the sanctification process. Many of the uh, Corinthian Christians were confused on all of those issues. And it's understandable. They were relatively new Christians. And they had a radically different life and worldview now than how they had been trained and grown up as unbelievers and pagans. So keep in mind in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul is specifically catering to questions that they asked. It was a Q&A with the pastor. So he is very focused, very narrow, very specific. Another thing I appreciate about this passage, it, has, it gives us a very realistic view of sexuality, relationships, and marriage. When people think of Christianity, that aren't people who are not Christians and they hear about Christianity, they think that we think we are perfect. They think that we think life is perfect. Everything is rosy. Everything's wonderful. There aren't any trials. We don't suffer with the common uh, problems and struggles that unbelievers in the world do. We've just got it all together. And unbelievers many times think Christians are supposed to have it all together. But when you read the Bible, it's refreshing because it's like, wow, I can identify with that man. Abraham, he was one messed up dude. Yet he was a friend of God. He was a man of faith. He had struggles and sin in his life. God loved him. He is with God now for all eternity. I can identify with Abraham. So as we read the Bible and we see humanity, we can relate with these believers. And so when we read 1 Corinthians 7, we can relate with them and their problems from one degree to another. So that's why I love the Bible. It is realistic. We're dealing with real people. God understands and knows that we are fallen, frail, and finite people. And as his children, he wants to help us. And so that's what he does in 1 Corinthians. Speaking of the realistic view, another reason I like 1 Corinthians 7 is because it talks about, I mean, it starts out with intimacy between husband and wife, and he goes on for chapter, uh, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and telling these, and he's kind of saying the same thing over and over again to married Christians. You need to do this. Again, I, I say you need to do this. Again, I say you need to do this. And the, op- the converse is that. Stop doing this so that you can keep doing this. It's like, okay, Paul, I got the point. You mean Christian 
You mean married couples really struggle with this? And the this issue is that many times single people, people who have never been married, people who are preserving themselves for marriage someday, sometimes naively, innocently, ignorantly, idealistically think that, wow, once you get married, you get to have sex all the time. How cool is that? Like, mm, actually, it doesn't work that way. Really? Yeah, really. And the evidence of that is right here. So that's just a realistic view of life. And that's why the Bible is another reason why the Bible is validated as true. So the realistic view. Okay, so now uh, we'll get down to details here. Before we try to interpret 1 Corinthians 7 and the difficult passage, I want to give you seven keys to 1 Corinthians 7. Seven keys you need to keep in mind. You should probably write these down. They are not in your uh, outline today. This is laying the foundation before you get to your outline. Seven, and I, I guess these are kind of hermeneutical keys. Seven things you need to keep in mind, have down. They are foundational. If you bypass uh, these or several of these or maybe even one of these, you are going to end up being confused when you're trying to understand 1 Corinthians, and you may even interpret several verses the wrong way. So let me give you the seven keys to interpreting and understanding 1 Corinthians 7 properly. Number one, you've got to have the right translation before you do anything. The right translation is critical. We saw that last week, 1 Corinthians 7.1. The NIV prior to 2011 said it is good not to marry. That is wrong. It's not in the Greek text. It is a misrepresentation of what Paul wrote, and it gives a distorted view of what God believes about marriage and singleness. We addressed that already. That is one example where you need a proper translation in 1 Corinthians 7. So make sure you're not looking at it. NIV 1984 version or before for at least verse 1. Uh, another problem in translation, just by way of example, look at chapter 7, verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecoming towards his virgin daughter, that's what the New American Standard Bible says. I, I like the New American Standard Bible. It's my preaching Bible. It's the one I study from. Uh, the problem is the word daughter is not in the Greek text. Uh, in the New American Standard Bible, the word daughter is actually in italics in my English Bible, meaning that the guys who translated my bible they added the word daughter even though it's not in the bible it is not warranted they should not have done that really so if you want to take your pen or pencil and put an x through the word daughter there you can you're not desecrating god's word it's actually desecrated when they added the word daughter there the esv does a little better on this verse the esv doesn't say virgin daughter the esv says betrothed betrothed and what they mean by that is the female that you are engaged to. That's a little better than New American Standard. Uh, they should have just kept it, what the Greek text says, Parthenon. Parthenos means virgin. Just leave it at that. Uh, that's what it should be. He is not acting unbecomingly towards his virgin. And then in verse 37, uh, they do the same thing. They add the word daughter there at the end of the verse. And then 38, uh, same. So you could scratch literally the word daughter there. Like that'll... That, that's an illegitimate translation, and if you keep the word daughter in there, it actually skews your interpretation. And we're going to see that when we get to that passage. So, uh, key number one, make sure you have the right translation of your Bible as you're studying 1 Corinthians 7. Well, what's the right translation? Well, you got to kind of, well, that's why you need to know Greek. Really. And if you don't know Greek, that's why you've got to have trusted Bible teachers who do know Greek and are consistent in their interpretation, and they can let you know exactly what it is actually does say that will be very helpful for you knowing greek does matter big time 
Okay, uh, so after number one key, have the right translation. Number two, be sure that you understood what chapter 7, verse 1 actually said. So key uh, number two is have the right interpretation of verse 1 because that sets the stage for the rest of the entire chapter. And aside from NIV saying uh, it's good not to marry, that's not only what I'm talking about. What I'm also talking about is make sure you understand when Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, you could put literally a colon there. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. I believe from the context in 1 Corinthians, the way Paul writes, the second part of verse 1 is what the Corinthians believed. It's what they wrote. It's what they thought, not what Paul thought. That's the issue. Paul does not, Paul is not saying, Paul is not promoting, Paul doesn't agree, Paul isn't explaining for the rest of the chapter this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is what the Corinthians thought, and they thought it wrongly. What did they mean? The Corinthians, when they wrote this, they, they were saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what they meant, it is good for a man not to touch a woman in the context of marriage. It is good for a Christian husband not to have sex with his Christian wife. That's what they meant, and that is what Paul corrects in verses 2 through 6. In other words, it is good to be celibate within marriage. And Paul's saying, whoa, no, it is not. That is wrong, that is sinful, that is satanic, he says that. So, key number two. Make sure you understand verse one properly, otherwise you're going to be off the rails before you even get started in the rest of the chapter. Number three, right translation, right interpretation of seven one, and then number three, uh, you need to understand that the basic governing, the basic principle governing the entire chapter in this discussion is verses seventeen through twenty four. Seventeen through twenty four. So if you wanted to highlight that, bracket that, whatever. Seventeen through twenty four. It's kind of an excursus. It's kind of um, an intermission it's kind of a parenthesis where he pauses and then he explains here's what i'm talking about here's the principle this principle applies to everything i just said and this principle will apply to everything i'm going to say for the rest of the chapter so 17 through 24 is an overriding principle that informs and helps us understand everything else he says in the chapter very specifically so I, I just call it, it's the contextual key to this chapter, 17 through 24. That's number three, the contextual key. Uh, and actually, I, I could summarize those verses for you by saying this. Remain as you are. Remain as you are. Now that you've become a Christian, you don't need to radically change everything. Once you become a Christian and you're still... So you and your hubby, you got married as pagans. And you've been married for 17 years as pagans. And Paul comes in, you hear the gospel, and then you get saved. And your hubby, he's not saved yet. He is a pagan. And then now that you're a Christian, think, oh, I can't be married to a pagan husband. He will poison me. He has the cooties. I need to be spiritual. I need to divorce him and get rid of him. I need to change my status. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. He keeps saying that. Don't change anything. Don't change what you do in marriage that you were doing prior to that. Don't change who you're married to. Don't change your status. And that's a theme all throughout. So the contextual key is remain as you are there are exceptions to that but that's the overriding principle number four we need to answer the, uh, keep in mind that paul is answering their specific questions and problems okay so he's being very specific 
First evidence is chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things you wrote, here's the first statement you said or the first question you made. Now I will address this in the following verses. So that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. The reason I'm saying that is because Paul talks about only one thing regarding Christian marriage in verses 2 through 6, and that is that as a married couple, you need to keep having sex with each other on a regular basis. That's all he says. So commentators and Bible teachers throughout the years have just bashed Paul, saying, wow, he doesn't even talk about love when he talks about marriage. In this passage, he doesn't talk about commitment. He doesn't talk about procreation. He doesn't talk about loyalty. He doesn't talk about feelings. He doesn't. And on and on it goes. And what they do is they just harangue Paul and nitpick about everything he didn't say. Well, the point is, he's not talking about those things. You want to know about love? That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Wait six chapters, please. So he's being very focused. And literally, there are these commentators just bashing him. Well, he didn't talk about this. And he didn't talk about this. And he didn't talk about this. And... He's got a very anti-marriage attitude and very anti-view of sexuality. And he's a prude. I am not kidding. Even Bible commentators are saying these kind of things. Why didn't he say this? Why didn't he say that? And by the way, that's the easiest way to criticize somebody who's a speaker or preacher. When they are done, whether they gave a 15-minute devotion or an hour and 15-minute lecture on the Bible, the easiest criticism, and I call it a cheap shot or a drive-by, is, well, you didn't say this. You didn't say this. Yeah, I didn't say this because that wasn't in the passage. Or, yeah, I didn't say this because Paul didn't say this. So we're not going to focus on what Paul doesn't say. We are going to focus on what is here in 1 Corinthians 7. That's what expository preaching is. It deals with the text. We let the text speak, not my own agenda. Not my own queries or interests or I deviate to some exception. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, He's not talking about the exceptions. What about this? Let's just deal with what Paul said. Start there. That's a good anchor. Uh, Number five. Boy, if I had to pick the most important principle out of the seven principles I'm giving you now, it might be number five. Look at verse seven. Paul's talking about marriage. He's talking about celibacy and singleness. He's talking about abstaining. He's talking about not uh, not abstaining. He is giving recommendations. A few times he says, uh, I recommend this. Uh, I command this. I don't command this, but I suggest this. Here's some helpful advice. This is my opinion uh, all throughout this chapter. And look at verse 7. Yet I wish. Here he gives his desire. This is a personal opinion by the Apostle Paul. I desire, my wish is, uh, practically speaking, or from my experience as a single man and being a Christian in ministry, yet I wish that all Christians were even as I myself Am. What is that? Single. I wish every Christian was single. Why does he say that? Well, he's saying that practically speaking because he just got finished addressing problems in marriage. And so and probably one of the biggest problems in marriage is ongoing physical intimacy between husband and wife. And if you are not married, you won't have that problem with your spouse because you won't have a spouse. And so therefore, you have just eliminated all those problems. That's what he's saying. Man, you know, this would just be much easier if nobody was married. In the beginning, God made Adam. The end. Oh, that would be the end. But anyway. um, So he's just given his desire here. This is me. You know, I've been seeing probably Paul was married. We think probably because he was a Pharisee. And we know historically that Pharisees had to be married. So it could have been that his wife died. We don't know. But uh, most scholars believe that and historians. So he was married possibly. Now he's single. And now his perspective as a single Christian man is that. 
I think it's better. I wish everybody was just single like me. However, now now he's getting down to where people really are. Each person, each Christian has his own gift from God. A gift. What gift, Paul? Well, one in this manner, another in that. What is the gift? Well, you either have the gift of singleness or you have the gift of marriage. If you don't, if you have the gift of marriage, it's kind of interesting. If you have the gift of singleness, God gives you one gift. It's the gift of singleness. If you have the gift of marriage, God gives you two gifts. Or he actually gives you one and takes it away. You have the gift of marriage, but you don't have the gift of singleness. So Paul says, you know what? You've got to start examining yourself and knowing yourself before God. So that's why 1 Corinthians 7, 7 is actually a key to an interpreting the entire chapter. Paul lays down the authoritative law of God Almighty. As we're talking about these things, you as an individual need to examine yourself, look at your desires, lay it before God, pray to Him, ask for His wisdom, be honest, be in His will, and discern. Do you have the gift of singleness or do you have the gift of marriage? And we know from Scripture the gift of singleness is very, very rare. It is not good for the man to be alone. Singleness is the exception. But, it, but to have singleness truly, it is a gift from God. It is a divine enablement from Him, and it needs to be thought of that way. And He's going to give us a test to determine whether you have the gift of singleness or not. And it's a practical test. It's can you as an adult restrain your sexual urges and desires in a way that you can maintain an ongoing holy life as a Christian, and not just a holy life, but a content life. Or, as long as you're single, do you just burn on the inside with sexual passions unfulfilled? Well, if that's the case, you don't have the gift of singleness. If you are burning on the inside... You have the gift of marriage. And Paul has a solution for that if you have the gift of marriage. It's real practical. Get married. So this is why this is so key. So that's why, I mean, you can get really confused. If you disregard verse 7 and you don't use that as the lens by which to interpret everything Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you're going to be led astray. You're going to be so confused. You're going to think Paul is contradicting himself, number one. And number two, you're going to... End up reading 1 Corinthians 7 like many commentators and Christians and people do, thinking that Paul thinks that celibacy is more spiritual than marriage. Well, why do I say that? Well, here's one specific example. Look at the end of 1 Corinthians 7. If you just read this verse out of context, verse 38 of chapter 7. So then, both he who gives his own virgin in marriage does well. Kalos, good. If you get married, if you're engaged and you get married, you, you do good. You haven't sinned by getting married. Some of the Corinthians thought that. They thought getting married was a sin. No, if you get married, that's okay. You do well. You do good. But he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Whoa. You read that verse and you're thinking, that sounds like celibacy is better than marriage. Celibacy is more spiritual than marriage. That is not what he's talking about. You've got to understand that in the light of 1 Corinthians 7, 7, where he laid down the groundwork. If you have the gift of singleness, and then you get engaged, and that, but in the, then you decide to not get married because you have the gift of singleness, you have done better because you're exercising the gift of singleness, and in light of all of its advantages, you have done better than if you have the gift of singleness and you got married. That's what he's saying. 
So that is referring to someone with the gift of singleness. If you don't have the gift of singleness and you have the gift of marriage and without a sexual outlet, you are burning with desires on the inside. And you try to be celibate, you haven't done better because you won't be able to live and conduct your life with moral purity or contentment. The better thing to do is get married. So that's why 1 Corinthians 7 is so important. Okay, key number six. Know who is talking. Okay, you got out if you want to, and you've got a hard copy of the Bible, give the following outline to your Bible. You have got to know who the audience is or who he's addressing in this chapter. Otherwise, again, you're going to be confused. So let me give it to you. Here's the outline. Who is Paul talking to? Verses 2 to 6, Paul is talking to a Christian couple. Husband and wife are believers. 2 to 6. Verses 8 and 9. Paul's talking to single Christians, single Christians who are widows or divorced. Divorced Christians or Christians who are widows. Verse 10 and 11, Paul is talking to separated Christians. Husband and wife, they are Christians, they are separated. They haven't been divorced yet. 12 through 16, Paul is talking to unequally yoked couples. One is a Christian, one is not. 12 through 16. Verse 25, Paul is talking to virgins and and specifically later on, engaged Christians who are single. Engaged Christians who are single as well as just singles. So I think that you're you're probably in there somewhere. I probably addressed your status and some of you maybe more than once. So that's going to be very helpful understanding who the audience is because he gives them different uh, guidelines and suggestions. So know who the audience is. And then finally, key number seven is understand Paul's comments when he gives suggestions and commands because he sprinkled those throughout the chapter and they're kind of confusing. Verse 6, he says, I say this by way of concession, not a command. This is not binding. I'm not forcing you to do this. God isn't forcing you to do this. Uh, the sentence before is just a suggestion. So, yes, verse 6 is just a suggestion. It's not a command. It's an inspired suggestion. Uh, verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. What's that all about? And many have concluded that, well, Paul was uh, saying that verse 10 is inspired of God and it's from Jesus. We need to understand it. And uh, he is not inspired. He doesn't have an authoritative opinion on this. So this is really binding, verse 10. And then in verse 12, contrast, where he says, but the rest I say, not the Lord. Here, I say not the Lord. So in other words, oh, this is just Paul's opinion, some say. But that's not what he's meaning. People look at verse 12 and say, oh, this is just Paul's opinion. It's not from God. It's not binding. It's not authoritative. That is wrong. That is wrong. Take verse 10 and 12 together. What Paul is talking about when he says, but to the married I give the following instructions, not I but the Lord. What he's saying is, in the Gospels, Jesus had a teaching ministry. Here's a principle that Jesus taught on authoritatively, and you can read about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Scriptures that I gave you. Then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say, I, the Apostle Paul, as an agent of God, an apostle who has the spirit of God living in him, speaking authoritatively, verse 40, where he says, in my opinion, she is happier. She remains as she is. And I think that I also have the spirit of God. And chapter one, verse one, he reminded us he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's speaking as an apostle in verse 12, and he says, but to the rest I say not the Lord. In other words, Jesus actually never talked about the following subject that I'm going to address in verse 12. That's what that means. I don't have anything to go back to Jesus in the Gospels on this principle. This is a new situation in life. God hasn't dealt with 
this issue with divine revelation yet. I have the privilege as the apostle to the Gentiles to be the first conduit to speak from God on this issue in a binding manner. That's what he means. Very, very important. Well, why is it that... How can he say this has never been addressed? Because in the Gospels, Jesus was dealing with Jewish people who were all raised in the faith of Yahweh and they were all raised in the covenant of Israel and they were all raised in the faith of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so it was a religious community. And God ordained marriage between believers in the Old Testament among the Jews. Believing Jew with a believing Jew, or at least professed believing. They didn't have mixed marriages in the Israelite covenant community. Where one was a believer and one was an unbeliever, and they're married together with obligations to one another. That was a new scenario, because Paul was talking to Gentiles. who They got married as pagans, and one of them got saved, and now all of a sudden, whoa! We've got a situation we've never had in the history of the world or of faith. We've got a believer who was a pagan, who married a pagan, and now he got saved, and he's married to his wife who's still a pagan, and we've got a mixed marriage. And Jesus didn't go into detail on how you're supposed to relate to your pagan spouse. Very, very important. So hopefully that clarifies things for you. So with that, we have now successfully, I believe, laid the foundation for two weeks from now, and we're actually going to look at verses 2 through 6. And if you're married, hey, bring your spouse. It'll be fun. And we're going to learn a lot together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 Six three zero 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 nine.